So here's what we're going to do. So you might have heard, you might have expected me to say, turn to Romans. We're going to take a break from Romans uh, for just a couple of weeks. And I want to talk about this season that we're in, this Advent season, um, season of December, as we're remembering uh, the coming of Christ. And it was the, it's just what we mean when we talk about Advent. We mean the arrival. And um, the Advent season traditionally or historically has been not just remembering uh, the birth of Christ, his first coming, but also looking forward to his next coming. And as we have considered Advent over the last several years, we have been in the Gospels. We looked at the Gospel of John. We looked at the, you know, the, the, the last year with the uh, shepherds and, and the wise men and Mary and, you know, what the gift of Jesus brings to us. Um, but this year, what I want to do is I want to look at the coming of Jesus from heaven's perspective. I want to I consider um, why it is that God sent his son into the world. I want to ask a couple of questions over the next few weeks, and that's one. What, why did God send Jesus? Who is Jesus, this Jesus that he sent? And what did he come for? What, what, what does he Want. And so, as we think about why did he come, we really back up all the way to before a word of creation is spoken in Genesis chapter 1. We find that even before that, before the foundations of time, the Bible says that God knew he would send his son. In fact, in the, in the way that eternity talks about it, eternally he has sent his son out of eternity into history. And so, why did he send his son? And so I want to consider that, and I think there's probably no better place to do that than Colossians 1. You know, the Christmas story is about the baby, you know, the baby that changed the world. Um, an angel came to tell Mary about the baby. Uh, Mary, she couldn't comprehend having the baby. Uh, Joseph's problem with Mary in the beginning was the baby. And, you know, an angel tells Joseph to raise the baby. And, you find that a manger is a birth, the birthplace of the baby. And the shepherds, they came and they worshipped the baby. The wise men followed a star halfway across the world to find the baby. And you find out in the Gospels that Herod, who was the king of the Jews at the time, wanted to kill the baby. And so this baby that changed the world, this God who became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, what, why did he come into the world? What, why is it that God had to send his son into the world? Well, I want to consider a few things this morning. He, he sent his son into the world so that he could save sinners like you and me, but I, I want you to know it's, it's more intimate and more personal than, than even that. He, he, um, why, who is this baby and why did he come? So, I'm, I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 1, and we're just going to go through the first, oh, handful of verses up to verse 14, and um, just look at them sort of one at a time, and I want you to see a few things that Paul will write about why Jesus Came. So, so, look with me. It begins this way in Colossians chapter 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Paul 
He's sending this letter to this church in Colossae, and he includes Timothy. Timothy's his travel companion at this time. And to be an apostle, which Paul calls himself, to be an apostle, you had to have two things. You had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have seen Jesus raised from the dead with your own eyes and to perform miracles um, under the uh, power of the Spirit of Jesus that had come into your life. It authenticated your role. And so, while Paul, he was not one of the originally 12 disciples. In fact, he'll talk about himself. He said, man, I, you know, I'm the Johnny come lately to this thing. I was born untimely. In fact, he began, um, we, we find out Paul's beginning in, in the Scripture is that he's a persecutor of the church. But he has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and sees the risen Jesus, and in fact, um, intimates in Galatians that he spent three years with Jesus after that, being taught by him. Verse 2, it says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Calls them saints, which means they're holy and they're, they're set apart by God. And they're faithful, meaning they're, they're dedicated, they're not wavering. And then he, he wishes to them grace and peace. Colossae, it's this city that's located, oh, if you were to go to Ephesus and then go 100 miles east, um, that's where it is. In fact, you can go there today, there's not much to see, but there is a sign that says Colossae, like a city sign. You can have your picture taken right there in front of the, uh, in front of the sign. Um, but it, the archaeology, the, the, the excavation has not you know, Colossae has never been a priority in the history of the world. In fact, its heyday was actually far um, many years before Paul even wrote this letter. Paul was likely preaching in Ephesus, and there was a man named Epaphras. He came and he heard Paul, and he responded to the truth of the gospel that Paul was preaching. So then what happens is Epaphras, he goes back to his home in Colossae, and from there he begins to tell his family and his friends, and then they end up receiving um, Jesus by faith as their Savior, and a church begins. And then some years later, Epaphras goes and he meets with Paul again, and he says, hey, Paul, we've got some problems that are um, brewing in the church in Colossae. And the problems were related around sort of this tension between three groups of people. And the first group of people, they were the believers. They were those that by faith, you know, they, they had um, received the grace of God by faith. By faith, they trusted that Jesus was who he said he was and that the gospel writers recorded that he was the Son of God made flesh and dwelt among us and that, and that he, he became our sin and, and died for our sin and was laid in a grave and, and rose three days later and then ascended back to heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And they believed this. Well, the second group of people were a group of people we'd call the Gnostics. And they were into a thing called Gnosticism, which really means knowledge or secret knowledge. And they prided themselves on the things that they knew, what they would call the, the deep things of God. And the Gnostics, at the heart of what they believed or, you know, this mysticism that they promoted was that things that you could touch, material things, physical things, these were all bad. 
And the only things that were really good were things that were spiritual or were unseen. And so what you needed was the ability to enter into this deeper knowledge and you needed to know the secret about how to get there. The third group was a group of Judaizers, and these were the people that had come out of the Old Testament uh, Judaism, and, and, and um, they were um, God-fearers and certainly knew their Bibles. Um, and, and yet, what, what after Christ had uh, come and after uh, the faith in Christ had come in Colossae and the church had been started, what they did was they began to tell people, hey, listen, Jesus is great, and faith in Jesus is great start, but we need more than that. We've got to go back to the law. Because Jesus is a great role model. But what we need to do is we need to do enough, enough law. We, we've got to obey in order to ultimately get to heaven. And so what Paul does, he sits down, he writes this letter. He's writing it to that first group, the, those that are the true believers. And he wants them to know, listen, Jesus is sufficient. He is supreme. He's going to argue for the supremacy of Christ over all things. You see, the Gnostics, since all matter was evil, God could not become flesh. He couldn't become human. They were having a problem with the first Christmas story. They were discounting it. That, that can't be true. And yet Paul's going to say it's absolutely true. The Judaizers, since their obedience to the law mattered, they saw Jesus as, as, you know, one that had broken the law, that had died under the law. And so he, he couldn't be the Savior because of that. And so Paul wants them to know faith in Jesus and, and the grace of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the truth of the gospel. And he's going to answer, why, why did he come? What does he want? Who is he? Well, the first thing I want us to see is the reason, one of the reasons Jesus stepped out of eternity into history was to give us a hope that would never disappoint us. So look at verse 3. It says, we will always thank God, Paul writes, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Notice who Paul thanks. He, he doesn't thank them for doing a great job. God is the cause of all of the goodness in their lives. In verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints... So he's thanking God, now not the Colossian church. Paul's aware where their faith comes from, where their love comes from, and it doesn't come from ourselves. And Paul's acknowledging for the Colossians, so here's this evidence of God's movement amongst them. So they, they have faith, and they have love. And Paul sees their faithfulness from the right perspective. That perspective. They're saints because they've been set apart. They didn't set themselves apart, they were set apart. And their faithfulness in Jesus is, is thanks to God. So, it brings me to this thing is Paul prays. You know, there is a, there is a connection between um, being a, a Christian and, and living out a Christian life and prayer. Maybe I'd say it this way. There's a connection between 
our prayer life and our theology. And theology literally means, you know, so what is it that we think about when we think about God? And on one hand, everybody is a theologian. And so it just matters. Are you a good theologian or a bad theologian? I mean, what kind of a theologian are you? And I would say this, pride is something without any doubt will poison your theology. And prayer has the power to kill your pride. See, prayer belongs and brings humility. Humility exists only in the presence of God. In true Christian theology, it flows out of your awareness of the presence of God. Listen, when you're aware of the presence of God, it begins to burn up all the nonsense in your life. Most Christians, um, you know, you, you have this mental trophy case, and, and you keep it so that you can display all the good things that you've done. You know, the trophy case is called righteousness. God calls it self-righteousness. And in some ways, many of us, we've got to continually be saved of all these, you know, these good works that we do. Well, we have to be delivered from ever thinking that anything other than filthy rags is what we bring into the presence of God. We've got to shatter our trophy cases. Several years ago, my mom, she was cleaning out some stuff, and she brought me um, uh, this box of trophies from when I was a kid. Um, you know, impressive things uh, from Little League and debate and other stuff. And I mean, I, listen, I was, I was proud of them at one time. But it, it would be ridiculous for me to take those trophies and then sort of scatter them around my office now. Now, you'd come in there and I'd start telling you about how my fifth grade Little League team was the best third-place team in the history of Southern Little League. You know, and how I played shortstop. And I mean, here's what you'd think. You would think I was sad and pathetic until you started telling me about your fifth-grade baseball team. I mean, it'd be silly. But in some ways, that's, that's what we do. And what happens is prayer, it keeps the experience of our faith grounded in Christ. So we're rightly humbled. We know that our only hope is in Christ. Humility before God is, is not a posture that brings to mind all the good things that we've done. We don't bow in a humble posture before God in prayer, and, and then what comes to mind are all the good things we've done. In fact, Jesus told a parable about that, about the guy that goes up onto the mountaintop and stands and, and says, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. Well, Jesus says that's not prayer, much, much less is it, any, is it any faith or anything that justifies anybody. Humility before God is not the posture that brings to mind our good works or our talent, but, but prayer nourishes a deep and faithful dependence upon God. It also provides for us this capacity to be able to love 
Notice faith here and love, they go together. Faith in Christ and, lo- and love for the saints. And, 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 and um, uh, love is this overflow of our faith in Christ. And notice where the faith and the love spring up from. It comes in verse 5. Look at what he says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That the faith and the love, they come from the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. This is one of Paul's favorite three things to put together. Faith, hope, and love. And it's important to understand this. As we think about God, we, we think rightly about him. I've seen many believers, they come to faith as Jesus, uh, in Jesus as their Savior. And, and you know, they, they can point to him as trusting him alone for salvation. And, and then you see him initially, you know, you, they, they grow up in this understanding of, of what it means to, to love others and to live out and, and, and to, to invest in others, to, to be humble, only to have their Christian life derailed because they misunderstand what hope is. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe without, you know, even being able to articulate it, maybe that's where you find yourself. You know, you're a believer, but you're disappointed, or you feel really despaired, or you're dis- disillusioned, you know, with your life as a believer. And I think it's because what happens is all the things that you've reoriented your life around the moment that you trust Christ, you you end up going back to a place where your hope hasn't. I mean, your hope is still in this world. Your hope might still be in the, you know, the American dream. Your hope is what you can accumulate in life or what it is that you will ultimately get. Their faith, their love, it sprang from hope. And hope is not wishful thinking. You know, I hope it snows, or, you know, I hope I get this or that for Christmas, or I hope, and then, you know, you fill in the blank. It's not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is, is a confidence that something that has been promised will happen. So think about faith and love and hope this way. Faith is looking upward to God. Love is looking outward to others. Hope is looking forward to the future. Think about this. Faith is it's rested on the finished and the past work of Christ. It is done. It is finished. Love, it, it works in the present for the good of others. That, that works itself out now for the good of others. Hope, hope is the confidence in what God will do in the future because he has promised it in his son Jesus. Notice where the hope is stored in verse 5. It's stored in heaven. So why does Paul say that their hope is stored in heaven? And, And I think he's saying that because in essence, our hope is Christ. Christ is the essence of our hope. Jesus is the all-encompassing bit of what our hope is, and in heaven is where he is. He is seated now even at the right hand of God. And in Christ, we see God keeping his promises. Listen, I got to tell you something, and and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, 
But someday, you're going to die. You'll be laid in the ground, or somebody will take your ashes and spread them across the beach, or, you know, up in the mountains, and your, your trophies, you know, if your hope is in your goodness, your trophies, your storehouses, your banks, your boats, your retirement, you're going to be depressed. You're going to be disappointed. Here, Colossians 1.5, hope, it's, it's laid up for you in heaven. The way the verb works is this present, continuous tense. It, it's, it's centered on, on, on Christ himself, and the place of that hope is in heaven. It's a place of security and protection where, where the corruption and, and sin of this present world, it can't, it can't touch it. Peter talks about it. He gives a threefold description of it. In fact, I think yesterday's devotional, day 14, was about this in our Advent devotionals. And Peter says about it that it's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, that it's a hope that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And it's a hope that is kept by the power of God. It's the, it's the whole of our salvation. It includes all of the gift of eternal life. The point is that we is that when Christians live by faith that resides in Christ, that faith, it produces love for others. And when that happens, we may face loss. We may face suffering. We, we may end up, you know, bearing our own crosses. But the Christian life, I mean, being a Christian, it extends far more than just the present. It extends out into eternity. Listen to what one writer said about this. He said this. He says, think of it this way. Loyalty to Christ may involve a man or a woman in all kinds of loss and pain and suffering. There may be many things to which he has to say goodbye to. The way of love may seem to many to be the way of a fool. Why, why spend life in selfless service? Why not use it to get on in the world as the world counts getting on? Well, why not push the weaker brother out of the way? And the answer is because of the hope that is set before us. And so how does the hope come to them? Well, in the verse 5, of, of this you've heard uh, before in the word of truth, the gospel, this hope that's laid up, you heard about it, the word of truth in the gospel, which has also come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It came through the gospel, and that, that gospel then was shared to others, and those people shared it, and eventually Epaphras heard it, and he goes and he shares it with others. And then eventually that message, it... it it reached you. It reached me. I mean, Paul, in this statement of just a few verses, you know what he's done? He's given us this picture of sort of global Christianity. This is a hope that has spread all around the world. 
every place on the planet for 2,000 years. And back in Paul's day, the Roman road, I mean, it connected the world the way the, the internet you know, connects and shrinks the world today. You could actually then, you, you could travel, you could get news, you could trade goods, cultures interacted with each other. That's the kind of world the gospel is for. It was never meant to be this, this private deal. You know, you take home, you put it in a box on your dresser, you pull it out on Sundays, you shine it up. You know, no, it's, it's this global hope. It's meant to grow and bear fruit and multiply. And if the gospel's not growing, in your life. You're going to find yourself unimpressed with it. You're going to find yourself dissatisfied. You're, the way Paul will put it in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll be counted amongst the most dissatisfied people on the planet because you have the presence of the living God through the Spirit of His Son Christ indwelling you. And so many believers walk around as though, you know what, the Spirit of God must be asleep in me. You know, you're like the guy that's going to get an iPad for Christmas and use it as a doorstop because he doesn't see what all the fuss is about. See, we have this opportunity to hear about the fruit of the gospel, the hope of the gospel in ways that we never have before. Do you know the day today? You, you could go home this afternoon. You could email one of our missionaries. You could just get on our website. You can look at our missionaries. We've got missionaries all over the world. You could email a missionary. You could simply ask a question. You know what? Give me a story about the hope of the gospel where you are. I'll tell you, an amazing thing will happen to you. One, you'll strike up a friendship with a missionary halfway across the world. Secondly, you will hear about the hope of the gospel in a way that will blow you away. It'll build your faith. It will convict you in the most encouraging way. You, you'll get to taste what's happening in another part of the world, and you'll want it for this part of the world. You'll want it for your kids and your kids' school and your neighborhood and your, and your workplace. Listen, the gospel, it, it's set up to grow and to bear fruit, and if it doesn't, it is stale, and that's how we treat it sometimes. You know, it's like those bananas that just sit on your counter and they get nasty and brown. And then what do you do with them? You put them in the freezer. Because you think, you know, I'll use them someday. I'll make some bread, right? We, we have freezers full of nasty bananas. Not sure where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> missionaries. You know what? They will remind you that you have a call on your life. You know what they'll do? They will refresh your hope. They might build up in you this courage to take a chance, to take a risk, to share the gospel when, when you don't have all the words to say and you think, you know what, I'm going to sound dumb because that happens to all of us. 
You know, just knowing a guy like Paul Tanner, who when he's not in another part of the world, you know where he is? Sits right back here in one of these back two sections um, on Sunday morning. You could email him. He works with BEE Ministries. He trains pastors and leaders in a place in the world that I can't say out loud. But you know what? You could email him today. You say, Paul, I heard your name this morning. Could I take you to lunch when you're in town? Or, hey, how can I pray for you? Or, hey, could I get one of your newsletters? I looked at his last newsletter. He said, listen, he said, you know, he was thankful because they just finished, he just finished writing this new course on 1 Peter, living faithfully in a hostile world. And he said, the English version is now complete. The, the translator that's going to translate it into the language that we need to, he's, gonna, he's getting that done. And our hope is to give it to these students in this unnamed part of the world by next May because the subject matter is so crucial for what they're facing. Email Paul. Say, man, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, man, your faith will be encouraged. Or, or do this. Email David Kissel, who's the area director of Young Life here in Tyler. Say, David, tell me about a story about the gospel, you know, kind of intersecting with, with a high school kid um, that's far away from God, far away from the church. Tell, tell me about that. It'll blow you away. Or, or, or email Heather Brenton. Heather sings on our worship team. And she also leads this Young Lives. It's a Young Life ministry to, to um, teenage mothers. They just had a Christmas party this week. And she'll tell you, say, tell me the story about what happened this week. She was telling me just this week about how God was leading her and so, sort of moving her. And she's like, okay, well, all right. And so she, she went with it, you know, because she followed that deal and, and, and worked the things out that needed to be worked out. And it turns out that when she gets there, God actually knew more than she knew about what was going to happen. And, and when she tells you that story, I'll tell you what, that'll, that'll encourage you. That'll build your faith. That'll, that'll stir up your hope. I mean, the gospel is powerful. It's viral. It can't be stopped. Even if it feels dead in your own life right now, it is not dead in the world or in the history of the world. Get a hold of it. Rekindle that hope inside of you. Why did Jesus come? Why did, why did the Son of God step out of eternity into history to take on flesh so that you could have hope that would never disappoint. Well, there's a second reason. Jesus left heaven to reveal that God has a perfect plan for you. Look, look at verse 9. It says this, and so, or it means for this reason, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, you know, to, to be filled with it. And the, and the reason for this knowledge is not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance 
and patience with joy so that our lives become pleasing to God. And then, so do you see the cycle? But Paul prays it so we'd be filled with knowledge, that our lives would become pleasing with God. When that happens, we bear fruit. And when that happens, our knowledge increases and the cycle keeps going. So we're dependent upon God for our spiritual growth. We need Him every step of our spiritual growth. We have to be filled by Him. He pours into us. The knowledge is relational knowledge. And it has the effect to permeate every aspect of us, our thoughts, our, our affections, our, our plans. Knowledge about someone, though, without a relationship with that someone, that doesn't have much effect on your life. You, 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 you might gain some information. You, you might even gain some insight. But information does not produce a change in your world. Relationship does. Here's a couple of things I'd say about the relationship. This is not about you getting to know someone who doesn't know you. This isn't mutual discovery. Galatians 4.9 says that we didn't know God first. He knew us. Of course he did. He created us. 1 John 4 reminds us we didn't love God first. He loved us first. It's not about you getting to know someone who doesn't know you. It's about someone who knows you better than you'll ever know yourself saying, come know me. Paul said, I want you to be filled with this knowledge, this relational knowledge, this, this knowing of who he is. And you can't get the knowledge unaided. It's spiritual wisdom. It's spiritual understanding. It comes through the Spirit. And we find that, that Jesus comes. He steps out of eternity into history and takes on flesh to reveal for you. God has a plan for you, a perfect plan. He wants you to know him. Well, there's a third reason. Jesus steps out of eternity into history and takes on flesh to rescue us from the power of darkness. Look at what he says in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He gives thanks to the Father, who qualifies you for an inheritance in the kingdom of light, rescues you, from the domain of darkness, bringing you into the kingdom of his beloved son, where you have redemption and forgiveness. And how does he rescue you? He qualifies you. Your account's been approved. He, he names you as an heir. You, you're now in his will. He defeated sin and death and Satan. There was death on the cross and his resurrection and new life. And he purchased you, he says, out of the slave market of sin. And he releases you from all your sins. 
Jesus steps out of eternity into history and takes on flesh to give us a hope that will never disappoint us, to reveal God's perfect plan, and to rescue us from the power of darkness. To sum it up, so why did he come? He came because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. He wants you to have a personal and intimate relationship with him forever. That's why he's come. He wants you to share in the inheritance that is yours now and forever. In his book, 66 Love Letters, Larry Crabb, who's an author and he's a counselor, and he writes about a guy that he was working with and who became his friend. And He writes it this way. He says, a friend of mine was raised in an angry family. Mealtimes were either silent or sarcastically noisy. My friend told me that down the street there was an old-fashioned house with a big porch where a happy family lived. He went on to tell me that when he was about 10, he began excusing himself from the dinner table as soon as he could without being yelled at and walking down to the old-fashioned house down the street. And if he arrived during dinner time, he would crawl under the porch and just sit there, listening to the sounds of laughter, the joy of the family. When he told me the story, I asked him to imagine what it would have been like if the father in the house somehow knew he was huddled beneath the porch, and then he sent his son to invite him in. And then I asked him to envision what it would have meant to him to accept the invitation, to sit at the table, then to accidentally spill a glass of water, and to hear that father roar with laughter and delight. Well, get him more water and get him a dry shirt. I want him to enjoy the meal. Crab goes on to say, we need to hear the father laugh. We need to know his great pleasure. But knowing that depends on experiencing the character of the God who made us. Why did Jesus come? Why did he step out of eternity into history and take on flesh? Because he loves us. And God wants us to know him personally and intimately, relationally, forever. He wants us to know the roar of his laughter and delight over us. Let me ask you, do you know that this morning? Have you, have you, have you come to hear the joy of the God who created you over your life? If you haven't, I invite you, enter into prayer. Take hold, grasp, hold again of the hope. Remember what he has done for you bring you in to that knowledge of knowing him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray.